Good morning. Good to see all of you and all of you that are worshiping with us uh, from home as well. Welcome. And I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 5. That's where our scripture reading is going to be. And so if you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles here in the seat rack in front of you. And if you're at home, you can go grab one uh, as well. So today we're going to talk about a few things. We're going to talk about the most important song you will ever sing. We're going to talk about who is the hero of your story, and you may be a little surprised by what I'm going to tell you. And we're going to talk about focusing on Jesus, but there's a way of focusing on Jesus that's not really helpful at all. So we're in our second week of uh, our series called Room of Marvels. It's a series on foundational Bible doctrines. So we're working our way through eight foundational Bible doctrines. And if you've been around uh, today isn't your first week, you know that we are interacting with a particular book, Emblems of the Infinite King, which is a systematic theology, which sounds like a big term, but it's a systematic theology book for people preteen to adult. And so um, we're interacting with you. You'll hear from it today uh, in sermon in various, in various forms as well. And so um, basic idea, and I've maybe embellished or changed a couple of little details because the author doesn't give a full picture of what's happening in this story because it's told like a story. But the way that I look at it is imagine yourself that you are living in a fortress and you have been, a spell has been cast on you. And while you're in that fortress, you've been told and you've come to believe that that fortress is all that there is. Everything that you need is there for the most part. Uh, but you've been told this is all there is living in this fortress. And a mysterious person called the key keeper, that gets to the book, comes in and brings a very special key. And the key is to go into a room that we're calling the room of, was up there, the room of marvels. It's, it's a room that shows you that there is more. There is actually more than the f- fortress. And so we enter today into the throne room, and we learn what is absolutely essential to know about God. That's our subject today. What is essential? What is the doctrine of God? What is essential to know about God? But before we launch into the sermon and into the text, I want to talk about two things. And later in my sermon, I am going to address for a few moments um, what happened to, uh, this week in the Capitol. So you can wait for that. So a couple of things I want to talk about. One of them is if you're here in person, you got a card uh, that we hand out at this time of the year, every year. This is not to be turned in. This is a tool for you, for you to grow in your own um, growth and generosity and stewardship. So the scripture has a lot to say about our giving, and it calls us to be generous givers. And sometimes we have trouble doing that. We have trouble doing that because we don't have enough faith in God, trust in God to do what he says about giving. Sometimes we have financial situations that put us in a place where we feel like we can't do what we would like to do. Financial Peace University is certainly one of the major ways that as a congregation we address that uh, in people's lives, plus give people some new tools and some new excitement about um, managing their money uh, well for God, for his kingdom, for their family, for themselves, all of that. And so this is a tool because what we ask you to do is to determine 
you know, make a commitment as to what your giving is going to be to Five Oaks as well as to other organizations, other ministries that you give to. What percentage of your income are you going to give? Now, the scripture gives a, a benchmark of 10%. It's not like you must give 10%, not a penny more, not a penny less. You know, that's not what it is, but it gives us a benchmark of what generosity looks like. And you may not be there. You may be like, uh, last year I gave nothing. So maybe this year it's going to be 1% or 2% because that's you're wanting to grow in your faith to that. Maybe it was 6% last year that you put down, and now you're wanting to go to 7% because you felt your faith growing as you followed God in obedience to uh, being generous. So this is something that you keep in your bill box. Uh, if you have a bill box, uh, so much is done online. Maybe, maybe it's something that you just keep inside your Bible or something like that. So there are basic practices that it says on it. Pray expectantly, commit wholeheartedly. Uh, give first. There's this principle in Scripture about first fruit giving. And really one of the ways that we can give first is by automating it, which is number four, is by determining well ahead of time, this is what it's going to be. I'm going to give online. It's going to be taken out on a regular basis. It's one of the best ways of being able to do first fruit giving and to really hold yourself accountable to what you commit. And, uh, and then verify periodically. Don't just give and you know do this once and forget about it. Check in to see how you're doing and check in on your own heart and on your own giving because God calls us to be cheerful, cheerful givers. So that's what this is about. Second thing I wanted to talk to you about was that during the Christmas services, I did something that I wouldn't normally do. I talked about uh, where we were at the coming into the end of the year financially. It was one of the things that, that, I, that I had as a personal message to our congregation in those Christmas services. And, and I explained that uh, churches, including Five Oaks, were in a position because so many people uh, have, in a sense, uh, because of COVID and being like zoomed out and tired out of doing things online, have kind of checked out to some degree, put their spiritual connection with their church uh, on pause. Uh, and all the surveys say this is so. Going into the end of the year, December's are really important for churches, and we just wondered how are we going to end the year. And I have very good news to share with you, and that is that we ended the year in the black. Not way into the black, but in the black, and nobody was expecting that. No, there was no projection that would have suggested that. So um, very, very thankful for that. Second thing I want to share with you. The giving for our BLESS campaign has come in to such a degree that we are going to be able to take one of those first priorities that we have, which is to pay off a $300,000 debt note, which frees up, helps us in our, as we were trying to do in the BLESS campaign, to strengthen our financial foundations, and uh, that is going to help us to be able to do that. So that's, that'll be happening this month, so that's another great piece of great news for us as, as a congregation. Uh, so we have a lot to celebrate. We uh, Ultimately, I just want to say I am thankful to God for his provision to us, uh, this church family. Uh, without that, we wouldn't be able to do that. Uh, but secondly, just as, as pastor, I look to my church family and I say thank you for being faithful uh, in your giving. And, uh, and God bless you for that. So we're going to pray. And then we're going to jump into the Bible reading and the sermon. And what we do when we pray this prayer every week is we're praying for the Holy Spirit to illuminate His Word in our hearts. We need that. Uh, we, we need the Holy Spirit to break through all the walls that we put up to understanding. 
and to, to teach us and to speak to our hearts and minds. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word, we ask that you would illuminate your truth. By your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see and our minds to understand. Soften our hearts to seek you first and equip our hands to do your work. Guide our steps and lead us to follow wherever you lead. Father, we thank you for your provision uh, to us, to our families, to our church family. We pray that we would be good stewards in our individual homes, but also continually be good stewards as a congregation, as a church family. And Father, um, I pray for our nation uh, right now uh, in, in the midst of of division and uh, so much violence and so many things that are happening, Father, I pray that, uh, that you would help your people to be people of peace and people that bring unity, certainly with each other, uh, those of us who know you. Please work in our hearts and, um, and in our minds in this and transform us to reflect your priorities, to reflect your heart. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to listen to the scripture being read by one of our five oakers. Revelation 5, verses 6 to 14. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. All right. So this series, as I explained last week, because this is our second week, uh, seeks to address a problem that is well stated by a uh, student who was in a uh, church uh, of uh, uh, a guy named uh, Justin Bailey, and he's written a book, and he shares this, this story of something that, that really struck him and really encapsulates what so many of us experience these days when it comes to our faith. And so the student said to him, he says, when we're in church and I'm listening to the preaching, it's like... It's like you're weaving a spell, I believe, and the world makes sense to me. But then I walk out the door of the church, and it's like the spell has been broken. I think a lot of us can relate 
to that struggle, the struggle of believing out there, what seems to make sense in here or in the quiet of reading our own Bibles, it makes sense, and then we get out into the world and it becomes a little bit more difficult. Um, and it becomes more difficult for a variety of reasons. The solution uh, that we're exploring throughout this series is something that C.S. Lewis said. It's a metaphor that he gave and that Bailey applies, but basically it's that we need stronger spells. That we're walking into a world that's casting spells. It's just, a, it's just a metaphor to try to describe what's happening, how our worldview is being formed by a world that doesn't believe in God, who doesn't believe in the Bible, and it's like it casts a spell, and we need to be able to stand strong in our faith. We need stronger spells. And the stronger spells, according to the Bible, means that we need to grasp and be captivated by sound doctrine. Now, I don't have that in your outlines. You can, you can grab that uh, in the next few moments if you're taking notes. We need to grasp and be captivated by sound doctrine. Doctrine is the teaching of Scripture. Usually it's a term that's used, what does the Bible teach about this? So what is the doctrine about this subject? This is a necessary series. I haven't talked about it very much in this series, but one of the things that spurred me onto this uh, quite a while ago was, um, were surveys. Uh, one specifically that's done every other year for the last eight years or so by Lifeway, together with Ligonier Ministries, that test the theological knowledge of people and then zeroes in on the theological knowledge of church-going people who go to churches like ours that teach from the Scripture on a regular basis. And what they show is, time and time again, every, other year, every couple of years, we get the bad news that a lot of people who claim to be followers of Christ and read their Bibles and go to churches that teach the Bible are very misguided on major doctrines of Scripture. Not everybody, but a, a number big enough to kind of uh, make, um, to, to raise some big concerns. So a lot of people don't know some of the basics of what the Bible teach about God and the Holy Spirit and all those kinds of subjects. In fact, if uh, it was in a time in the past and they were put on trial for heresy, they would pass as heretics uh, pretty consistently. So um, it's no wonder, and this is why I want to say something about the Capitol, what happened in the Capitol this week, because there were a lot of people storming the Capitol, carrying signs like Jesus saves or various Bible verses. A lot of people who identify themselves as Christians, and I, I'm not saying they're not Christians. But it explains why Christians from all over the political spectrum, from the left to the right, I think it explains why um, so many Christians are captivated by the wrong things. Captivated by the wrong things. And betray an inability to keep the main thing the main thing. An inability to keep God and his kingdom central in their lives, as Jesus said. Every single one of us, every single one of us, without exception, needs to ask this question regularly. Is God and his kingdom the main thing in my heart and in my mind and that to which I devote my strength? And when we see, and we will see aspects of our lives that are not keeping the main thing the main thing, the Bible calls us to repent. And it calls us to develop new spiritual disciplines and habits 
or to go back to the spiritual disciplines and habits that maybe we've laid aside that will strengthen the foundations of our faith so that we actually know what it is that we believe and we know how to live what we've been called to, to follow and to believe in our daily lives. So that's, there's more that could be said, but that's what I'm going to say to it. I think this series is extremely important right now in our moment as Christians. So today we look at the doctrine of God. What does the Bible teach about God? What's essential to know about the infinite king? And the very first thing is that we need to know is that your story begins with a song. Your story begins with a song. The song is about God and his holiness and his glory. So there's a passage in Isaiah 6. It would have been a second passage, but it would have been a lot to, to read. So let me just set it up for you. In, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, God calls Isaiah to a ministry of prophecy to speak his words to the people of Israel. But he does it in a way that basically almost scares Isaiah to death. I mean, Isaiah believes he is about to die because he comes face to face with God on his throne, surrounded by really fearsome-looking angelic beings. And what is emanating from God is his holiness. We'll talk about that in a moment. Which just brings to light the darkness in Isaiah's life to the point that he thinks he cannot survive seeing God in all of his holiness. The creatures around the throne are continually singing a song, Isaiah tells us. And it's this, Isaiah 6.3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's a very similar song to what we see as we go to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 5, where it says, beginning in verse 13, just a portion of what was read, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Our life song is about God's holiness and about his glory, the glory of his holiness. Now, holiness may be the most important characteristic of God that we can possibly utter or begin to understand. And part of the reason is because it's so central to descriptions of God in the Bible. But secondly, because if you understand what it means by the holiness of God, it is so comprehensive, it covers just about everything. And it's part of the challenge of being able to understand what does it mean. We usually like to shrink it. You know how we shrink sin? We're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. We shrink sin to just breaking God's laws. It's so much more than that. It's a rebellion against the God of the universe. It's, it's uh, trying to become our own gods. It's idolatry. It's so many things beyond breaking some rules that God has set. Same thing with holiness. We shrink it down to it being like it's just like he's really good. And it's so much more. So... Here's a couple of ideas to kind of help you kind of begin to grasp or to hold on to the meaning of holiness. Uh, the first idea that's related to holiness is to be set apart. So in the book, Emblems of the Infinite King, it sometimes refers to God as the other than God. 
because he is so different from us. He usually says the other than king. He's so different from us. That's part of the idea of holiness. It is something that's been set apart and different, wholly different. Now, interestingly, in the Bible, people, some people, and things, some things are called holy. How can that be? Do we share in the, is it that we are like God in that way? No. We are set apart. Uh, so a vessel can be made and then dedicated to the temple. And when it's dedicated to the temple or the tabernacle, it is called a holy vessel, meaning it's set apart for God's purposes. And we are called holy, partially, meaning we have been set aside for God's, set apart for God's purposes, set aside, set apart from the rest of humanity to be part of his purposes in this world. The second idea is the idea of purity and wholeness. Purity and wholeness. We really got to hold those two together. Uh, there's no impurity in God. He's whole. Holy good and perfect, no brokenness. He has perfect integrity. It's, he, he is perfection, the scripture tells us, and uses that word sometimes interchangeably with holiness. Jesus in one place says, be holy as God is holy. In another place, he says, be perfect just as God is perfect. And so he is perfection. People can be called holy only in the sense that God's holiness, in this sense, only in the sense that God's holiness is credited to our account by virtue of what God did on the cross or Christ did on the cross. We put our faith in Him. So in the Scriptures, Christians are called saints. Every Christian is called a saint in Scripture. And saint means, if you were to use a more literal translation, Holy ones. He uses the same word as holy. Holy ones. We are holy ones. We are saints only, not because we are holy in of ourselves or because we act like it. We are holy only in the sense that the holiness of Christ has been credited to our accounts. This holiness is God's glory, and God's glory relates directly to our lives and to our everyday purposes in life. So the Westminster Shorter Catechism was written in the 1600s. And it's a tool, it was written as a tool to teach children uh, doctrine, theology, beliefs. And it was used a question and answer format that was used, it's not the only one that that, that does it, but it uses a question and answer, and you basically, you hear the question, and then you answer, and you learn a whole catechism that way. Uh, it famously be begins with this question. What is the chief end of man? What's the purpose of humanity? Man's chief end. This is the answer that children are to give, and adults. Man's chief end, our purpose in life, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God, and notice, to enjoy Him forever. Why does it say that? Because to glorify God means to delight in Him. That's how we glorify in God. We delight in Him, and we honor Him. And that leads to our deepest and most enduring happiness. Our whole life is about living for His glory, and that's where happiness is found. And that's why we can enjoy Him 
uh, in this way. So 1 Corinthians 10, 31, the Apostle Paul says, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So let's listen to emblems of the infinite king as we enter into the throne room. Chapter 1, the throne room key, the doctrine of God. As you turn the key, a door opens into a room made out of the heavens. Above, there is a canopy built out of stars, whose light curves down to form the most brilliant floor you've ever seen. In the middle of the room sits a throne, holding a figure so bright, he seems to be wearing the sun, or maybe he is the very source of every light ever known. You desperately want to look away, but you can't. His beauty and glory calms your fears, and somehow at the same time makes you more afraid. You don't know what to do, where to turn, or how you can stand before him much longer. But that's when you hear the key keeper. That's when that wise voice, the same one that offered you the key, whispers in your ear and explains. The Throne Room Song. Your story begins with a song. Your story begins with a song. It is a simple song, no verse, just a chorus but it rings like thunder in your ears. No song in human history has ever come close to its terrifying beauty because it's like no other song ever written. This one was composed for someone who actually deserves it, one bigger than the world, one different from everyone and everything else you've ever known or could know. This song is fit only for a king, but not just any king. This song belongs to the king of kings, the one seated on the throne in front of you, it is for him and him alone. Only the creator, the Lord and ruler of all, is worthy of this chorus. It is why he creates angels of fire to sing its majestic words. It is why music exists in the first place. It is why this song echoes throughout the heavenly throne room around you. And it is why everything he created has this song written on their hearts. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 6.3. You can hear it now, can't you? The king made everything in the world to sing this song with their voices and with their lives. That includes you. He made you to sing his chorus. This is why your story starts here, in his throne room, with his song because every story starts here, because every story starts with the king. All right, so your story begins with a song. That's the first thing we need to understand about the infinite king. Secondly, your story is not all about you. This is probably one of the most countercultural things that we can say in our particular cultural moment, <laughs> to say that your story is not all about you. We live in a world where everything is about you, where the self is enthroned above everything else. So this is the most countercultural thing that we can possibly say. But to say it's not all about you doesn't mean you're not important. It doesn't mean that you're not valuable in the story because you are. From the vantage point of epic stories, you are the hero of your story. Now hold on for a moment because I'm, this, is, this is where I said you're you're not going to be, you weren't expecting that. You are the hero of your story in a very specific sense from the perspective of epic stories. Who is the hero of the original Star Wars series? 
(laughs) It's not Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's Luke Skywalker. Who's the hero of the Lord of the Rings? might say it's Gandalf with all of his power and strength, but it's not. He's not even in part of the story. He just disappears all the time. It's Frodo. What do the heroes of epic tales, you take any epic tale, epic tales that are told today all the way back throughout history into ancient times, what do the heroes have in common? They are on a quest. They are weak and deeply flawed. The heroes are always weak and deeply flawed, and because of that, they need help. And in that sense, you are the hero of your story. Like Isaiah, who thought he was, used the words, I have come undone, when he saw the holiness of God. You have been commissioned like Isaiah. You're on a quest, you're deeply flawed, and you need help to accomplish your life's mission. Isaiah gets that. Being the hero isn't glamorous in the sense that I'm talking about. Nothing glamorous about being the hero. Um, But you can be sure of this. The story is never always all about the hero. It's not. It's beyond the hero. And your story is not all about you. Your story is about God and His glory, according to the Bible. And you play a role in His story whether or not you accept it. Doesn't matter. You may not believe in God of the Bible. You may not believe in the quest that he's called us to live in. Doesn't matter. He is God. And whether you accept your role in it or not does not matter. You still are playing a role in his story. It's his story, and the story is about his glory. You are flawed. I'm flawed. I have a purpose. It's purposeful. I'm needy, and so are you. You're a needy hero of your story, but your story is about God's story and His glory, which He intends to share with you. God intends to share His glory with you. Look at all the places. I mean, the story itself makes this point, but look at all the places where it says it explicitly. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. He's going to share his glory with you. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. A mystery that God destined for our glory, His people, for our glory before time began. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had. This is Jesus speaking to His disciples, or praying in front of His disciples on the night that He was betrayed. With that glory that I had with you before the world began. And He comes back in the prayer later and He says, I have given them, these disciples, the glory that you gave me that they may be as one one as we are. I have given them the glory that you gave me. One more passage. And we all, okay, this reference to unveil faces, the Apostle Paul in this passage is talking about what happened when Moses went up to receive the law from God and speak with God, and he came back, and his face was literally shining, 
and he had to wear a veil so that people could see. It says, we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. That has to be a part of our imagination of our view of life, of our understanding of ourselves and our purpose in life. That has to be a part of it. What do you need to know about the king? What is essential? Your story begins with a song, and your story is not all about you. Number three, the king wants you to know him. The king actually wants you to know him. So he's put his story in your heart. But not just that. He's declared his story in creation, the scripture tells us. Not just that, he's revealed his story in his son, and he has recorded his story in Scripture. The Bible is the Word of God. It's God's authoritative Word to us. It shows, one of the things that it shows, it shows us God's desire for us to know him because he reveals himself through his Word. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Timothy. He says, all Scripture is God-breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every once in a while, I circle back around to the same subject. Um, and that is that there is a strain in Christianity today that dismisses most of the Bible and says, really, you can ignore most of what the Bible says, but really what you need to fo- focus on, what is really authoritative, is what Jesus taught. If you haven't run into that form of Christianity, you will. It's just a matter of time. It is, or it has been, gathering quite a bit of momentum. It's very tempting to go in that direction. I understand why some people kind of buy into that, that narrative, that line. Because so much of the Bible defies our logic, it really does. And sometimes it defies our values. Sometimes it actually, the Bible seems to be defined. We're reading the Bible, and it seems to be defining the very values that the Bible shaped in us. If that hasn't happened to you, you're not reading the Bible. <laughs> Everybody reads the Bible and comes away sometimes scratching their heads going, what? <laughs> All right? That's part of the reality of our fallen world and of our, the limits to our understanding, all of that. Narrowing down the Word of God to just what Jesus said and what Jesus taught is very tempting, but it is very problematic, and in actuality, it's disastrous for most people's faith. I want to give you, I don't know, about five reasons or so, real quick, five or six reasons. So the first one is, almost everything we know about Jesus is in the Bible. If you undermine the Bible, you undermine everything that you know about Jesus. How the logic of that is missed Sometimes in some of the people that I read is, I just don't know. I just don't know. Um, Secondly, Jesus quotes from and teaches the Bible as the authoritative word of God. You can't value Jesus and his teaching and devalue the thing that he valued so highly. Third, Jesus' life and teaching 
aligns with those parts of the Bible that we often don't like and make us feel uncomfortable. In other words, yeah, there's a lot in the Old Testament especially that we kind of scratch our heads and just kind of sometimes it burns into our hearts and it's very difficult to understand. If you read the Jesus, you read the Gospels carefully, you read all of his teaching, almost everything that you hate about the Old Testament, if there are things you hate about the Old Testament, is in the teaching of Jesus. So you can't, you can't undermine that. You have to learn to understand it because Jesus values it. Here's the other thing. It's just too clever. And, and I'm not saying clever like, boy, you know, that's really smart. That's the way to go. That's not the clever I mean. Most people can see through it. They can see what someone is doing. Certainly the next generation cannot get the logic of that. Another generation will come up and these people are saying, Jesus, Jesus, the rest of the Bible doesn't matter. The next generation goes, and why, Jesus? It's way too clever. Doesn't doesn't fit. Why are you holding on to Jesus? Because the only thing we have is this Bible, and you're undermining the Bible. It just doesn't it just doesn't make any sense. It's too clever. Besides, what we don't like, by the way, all those things that you read in the Bible you don't like. Hundred years ago, most people celebrated. Somebody with a different personality than you go read the same thing and go, no, this is good. One example: if you live in a war-torn country where evil dictators are going into villages, stealing your girls, killing the men, torturing people, and you read about a warrior God that you read about in the Old Testament, you applaud. But in the words of one theologian, when you live in the comfort of your suburban world, that's horrifying to you. And you wonder, how could God? It's always shifting what we value, and what bothers us. Last thing, I think this is the last thing. Yeah, it's too easy. <laughs> it's too easy when you treat the Scripture that way and you say, Jesus, yes, the rest of the Bible, no, or Meh. It's too easy when you do that to make God in your own image. God wants you to know Him, not this projection of who you think He should be, what you like, what you think He should do. God wants you to know him for who he is. What do you need to know about the king? What are the essentials? The story begins with a song. Your story is not all about you. The king wants you to know him. Number four, you are not the king and the king is not you. Um, At the core, we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, but at the core of the problem in our world is that we kind of like try to, we storm the throne of God and sit in it to run our own lives in our own world. And that's the mess that we have. We're going to listen to a part of the section from the book in just a moment here from Amblin's. Uh, but what he does is, and you'll, you'll read it this week, because your assignment is chapter one uh, this week, he, he does this thing between, he says, God is this and you are not. God is this and you are not. God is infinite and you are not. God is not limited by time and space, but you are. God doesn't change, but you change all the time. God has no beginning and end, but you had a beginning, and you could have an end. And the book looks at two other ways that the king is the king and we are not, and that's what we're going to listen to right now. God is God, because God is holy and worthy of glory. But you are not. You are not holy, nor do you deserve his glory. God's holiness is very important. 
It is the focus of the king's throne room song, which sums up the king's character. He is holy, holy, holy. At its most basic, holiness means that the Lord is set apart from everything, including all of his creation. He is different from us. That means that his ways are different from our ways. But it also means that he is pure, good, and faultless. While you are not always these things, that is why he alone deserves praise. He alone deserves worship. He alone deserves all of you. But perhaps the greatest difference between you and God is that he is a trinity and you are not. Don't let this word scare you. It simply means that there is one God who has and always will exist in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God and each person is different from the others. And there is only one God. The Trinity is a big reason why God is the other than King. Even though the Trinity sometimes seems really hard to understand, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Remember the King made you to sing his song. He wants you to know him this way. So to help, think about the difference between who and what. Take the President of the United States. If you were able to ask him the question, who are you? He would answer, George Washington. If you then asked him, what are you? He would likely respond, well, I'm a human being, of course. Now what happens when we ask God the same questions? His answers would be a little like George Washington's, but a lot different too. According to his own speech, God would answer like this. Who are you? The Father. What are you? The one God. Who are you? The Son. What are you? The one God. Who are you? The Spirit. What are you? The one God. The King's answers highlight the beauty of the Trinity. While God is perfectly three persons, that who question we ask, he at the same time still has only one nature, that what question. God is the perfect three who's and one what. God's three persons and one nature makes him worthy of worship. God is completely happy in the Trinity. That is why he needs nothing besides himself. While we need others to help us and take care of us, God doesn't. The king has a perfect three-in-one relationship that makes him happy and filled with joy. This is what he calls love. What do we need to know about the king? One last thing. Listen to and follow the king's words. So the Hebrew word for listen is the same word as obey. Depends on the context. Sometimes it means both. It oftentimes means listen, and implied in it, it means obey. Listen and do. To hear is to heed. 
To hear God say something is to heed what he says. The prayer Jesus prayed every day once he was able to speak, as he was growing up, the prayer that he prayed every day because every Jew from his day, every devout Jew, prayed this prayer and had been praying this prayer for hundreds of years. Today, 2,000 years later from Jesus, the Jews, devout Jews, still pray this prayer. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, where it begins with that word, listen, hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Heed this, Israel, do this, acknowledge that Yahweh is one, love Him with everything that you are. I want to finish with a little reading from uh, the very end of the chapter of uh, Emblems, where uh, he is driving home that God made you to know him, and which is why knowing him is the most important thing about you. And he says, you'll be tempted to write your own story. You'll be tempted to try to write the king's story for him. You'll want to control him even though you cannot. You will even be tempted to try to take his place. Perhaps you already have. Have you ever thought that God should do things the way you want him to do them? You ever thought to yourself, I could do a lot better uh, of this than God? Have you ever been mad at God because he doesn't listen to you when you tell him how to run your life? That is why the throne room's lesson is so important. Remember, you are not the king, and the king is not you. That is why your story begins with a song. If you want to sing this song rightly, if you want to know where your song leads, turn the next key and open the lock. We'll do that next week, but this week... And I encourage you to focus on this chapter and remember the very last page is an index with scripture to read that aligns with the subjects of that chapter. Well, we begin our response to what we hear in God's word uh, together in worship. We begin that response uh, by celebrating communion together. So the king who wanted us to know him and wants us to know him, becomes a man. We just celebrated that in Advent. He comes and he dwells among us and eventually goes to a cross. He gathers his disciples around him and he teaches them to do something that he wants all of his followers to do from that point on. And that is to take bread and in taking that bread to remember that his body was broken for us. And so we do that in remembrance of him. He took the cup and he said, this is my blood, which has been shed for the remission of your sins. Let's drink together. Father, we thank you that you are God that not only wants us to know him, you've made it possible most beautiful expression of the knowledge of you, of your revelation is Jesus. 
We see Jesus giving his life for us. We see Jesus in all of his glory, making it possible for us to be in a relationship with you so that you can share your glory with us. Help us. Help us to live for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.